Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's episode, Local Voices Manager Maisha Hedden interviews author Tiffany McDaniel for Loganberry's BIPOC Author Showcase to discuss her new novel, Betty, a coming-of-age story about a girl born to a white mother and a Cherokee father in rural Ohio and how she manages the brutal secrets of her family's past as they come to light. Betty can be purchased at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links included in the episode description. Please note that there are audio issues towards the end of the program. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome to Lines of Loganberry. Today we have author Tiffany McDaniel, the author of two novels. Her first novel was the summer that melted everything. And her second novel, which we're discussing today is Betty. Tiffany McDaniel is a native of Ohio. Her new novel, Betty, has gotten a lot of attention from exciting sources such as Vogue Magazine, Salon, and Entertainment Weekly. And it was the subject of a three-way auction for the UK and Commonwealth rights. Betty, from the book jacket, is a novel about a young woman Born in a bathtub in 1954 to a Cherokee father and white mother, Betty is the sixth of eight siblings. The world they inhabit is one of poverty and violence, both from outside the family and also devastatingly from within. When her family's darkest secrets are brought to the light, Betty has no choice but to reckon with the brutal history hiding in the hills, as well as the heart-wrenching cruelties and incredible characters she encounters in her rural town of Breathed, Ohio. Despite the hardships she faces, Betty is resilient. Her curiosity about the natural world, her fierce love for her sisters and her father's brilliant stories are kindling for the fire of her own imagination. And in the face of all she bears witness to, Betty discovers an escape. She begins to write. We are interviewing Tiffany McDaniel today with my colleague, Sarah Willis. Sarah Willis, um, who uh, currently works at Loganberry, is also the author of some Things That Stay, which uh, won many awards and also was adapted into a movie. So Tiffany McDaniel, welcome to Lines of Loganberry. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled are- to be here. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, let's begin by having you read a selection from your book. I'm going to read um, the beginning of chapter five. It uh, really sets up this Southern Ohio town, which is uh, Breathed, Ohio, which is inspired by the town I grew up in, Southern Ohio, but it's also inspired by the town that uh, my mother Betty had uh, grown up in after her father had settled them after living sort of cross country and and being born in Arkansas. So this will sort of set it up for readers and um, Welcome to Breathed was painted in red on a splintery shred of barnwood nailed to an American sycamore. I would come to learn that between heaven and hell, Breathed was a piece of earth inside the throb, where lizards were crushed beneath wheels and the people spoke like thunder 
grinding on thunder. There in southern Ohio, you woke to the barks of stray dogs while always aware of the shadows of larger wolves. How you say the town's name again? Tristan asked. Breathed. Not like you breathe something in, Dad looked through the rearview mirror at Tristan. Say it like you're taking a breath, then you say Ed. Breath, Ed. All around the hill stood like a great exclamation from man to the heavens. Known as the foothills of the Appalachians, the exposed sandstone formed ridges, cliffs, and gorges shaped and cut by glacier melting. Covered in a green mix of moss and lichen, the ancient sandstone was named after the things it resembled. There was a devil's tea table, lame deer, and the giant shadow, named handed down to each new generation as if they were as valuable as heirloom jewels. Passing through the hills and cutting across the land were not roads or streets, but lanes, as the locals called them, as if to say the dirt-covered tracks were nothing more than widened paths. Main Lane was where St. Sammy's, movies, toy store, fanciest dress shop, and other businesses from main lane branch residential lanes where every house had a family Bible and a good recipe for bread. Further out, homesteads owned the acreage. In her most wholesome form, Brethid was a wife and mother who made sure to hang her flag banners on her porch rails every 4th of July. At her darkest, she was a place she could bleed to death in without a single open wound. Dad drove into Brethid slowly like someone careful where he steps. A white-haired man holding a yellow balloon soon came into view. He was standing by the edge of a wood line. Hey, old fella, Dad hollered out his open window as he waved at the man. Landon Carpenter, the man waved back, that really you? Dad's answer was a short honk of the car's horn as we continued past. That was old Cotton Withers, Dad told his kids as we stared back at the man still waving with both arms. Hasn't stopped sending his letters, I see, Mom said as she watched the yellow balloon float up into the sky. I turned my attention to the town around us. We had lived in wildernesses before. Trees as tall as the men were not, meadows as lovely as the women were. Yet there was something different about Brethid. It seemed to inhale and exhale as if it was not a town that had been created by humankind, but a place born unto it. I wanted to write Brethid into a poem. I would rhyme the words if I must, but speak them like I was throwing stones into a river. That seemed the only way to represent a place where the dirt lanes looked like brown diamond snakes laid out, the scales reflecting the sunlight. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to ask you this up front because we had some questions about it in the store. Logan Berry has um, an annual event that they do. It's the BIPOC Author Showcase. And so we wanted to know, and it doesn't matter for this interview, but do you, do you self-identify as Native American? I know that... Yeah. Well, my father is white. So I grew up half of the time living with my mother and her Cherokee upbringing. And the other half I spent living with my father, who is white. And I know that when people look at me, they do see me as white. Um, You know, growing up, anyone who saw me with my mother, they said, I didn't know you were adopted, Tiffany. And so my experiences were shaped by, you know, being perceived as a white person in predominantly white communities. And so I haven't tried to insert myself in that narrative because I haven't experienced the racism that mom and papa experienced. And so, um, you know, from the beginning of my career, I just identified as an Ohio native and I haven't really, you know, said one way or the other. And it feels kind of advantageous now to say that, to sort of insert myself, my own upbringing into that. So I just acknowledge that, you know, my father's white, uh, mom is Cherokee, and I just fell somewhere in the middle. So, uh, so I haven't been saying that because um, I feel like that's sort of um, trying to insert myself in their narrative when really... I want their story and their story of what Cherokee meant to them and kind of the racism they experienced to be the one that's sort of held higher than my own personal story. So 
Okay. Thank you. That was a good explanation. And it makes sense that it could not be a short explanation because it's a longer explanation. So I get to ask questions now. Hi, Tiffany. Hi. I really love this novel. I loved reading it. Um, and I hate spoilers. So I'm not going to be specific about any of the plot lines. Um, but there is this wonderful balance between the sweet moments, the beautiful things that happen to these characters, and the tragic ones. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you balance those and how you work to show us the good and the bad of all the individuals and the families in the society? Yeah, you know, um, especially with a book like this, where we're talking about generations of family, that balance is so important. And, you know, I look at this book as a book of light with moments of darkness, as opposed to a book of darkness with slivers of light. Just as in life, we have to find that balance, you know, every day in the world, there is joy. There's also pain, I think, in books, we must acknowledge this. And, um, you know, without the ugly bits, we lose the ability to sort of be grateful for the things that are beautiful. Um, you know, I, for this book specifically, I turned to my papa Landon to be the one who sort of struck that balance in the book. You know, Landon had died over a decade before I was born, so I never got to meet him, but I met him best I could through the stories and, and um, the memories of my mother, her siblings, and and uh, Mama Alka, who was married to him. And uh, I really wanted to preserve from those sessions um, his love for his children, but also the children's love for their father. And he was really the one who empowered them, who supported them. Uh, he was a champion for their education, you know, their hopes and their dreams. And especially for mom and her sisters who, you know, Papa was an ally for them in a time when girls and women were, you know, facing more stereotypes than we do today. And, you know, he taught them things that, you know, being, female was powerful and um, what they had to say mattered. And, um, you know, you, you look at someone like Betty who was experienced bullying and she was experiencing, you know, being called racial slurs. And you look at Papa Landon, you know, I listened to the stories of the family about him being beaten up by groups of white men in these communities. He was sort of trying to go into and find work. And, and so you look at this as a man who um, should have been much more angry than he was. And yet when he was talking to his children, he was sort of, you know, educating them, saying that, you know, you have to find that balance. These things are going to happen, but it doesn't mean that you should turn away from your culture or be ashamed. And so, you know, and I think that helped because he had been raised in a household with several generations of his family in that household. You know, the elders only spoke Cherokee and he was of a generation where he was entering the white man's world. So he had to also learn the English and the way that, uh, you know, his mother and his grandmother, who was really strong women and they had raised him, you know, they, they sort of taught him and instilled in him that balance, that sort of love and hate in the world. And I think, um, you know, what made Landon a great man was that he didn't abandon those teachings as he became an adult and he didn't let the hate and the violence sort of uh, get to him where it tuned out all that love and compassion and kindness that uh, his mother and grandmother had taught him. So, you know, he was the one who sort of stood on that middle ground, struck that balance for these characters and, you know, family stories, they're, they're important to reserve not only the good and the bad and because um, all of those different paths, have led to the one that we're on now. And so, um, you know, he was really that sort of defining balance in the story that, you know, especially for my mother, Betty, who, you know, he taught her 
these things are going to happen, but there is, um, you can survive on the other side of it. And so, you know, I, I looked to finding that balance through PAPAL. So I have a quick question here. So then um, when the stories about the Cherokee, like the, um, the stories of folklore, the stories about um, Cherokee religion, did you pull that whole cloth from memory and from talking to your family, or did you do additional research about um, the Cherokee that uh, were not forced into Oklahoma? So I did both. Yeah, when uh, this book actually started nearly 20 years ago when my mother had told me a secret, and then that led me to have those sessions with family members. And so uh, Alka was really an important part of that because she was of that older generation. She was uh, Landon's wife. And so she filled me in on sort of his early upbringing, you know, growing up in that household. And what Landon had sort of um, taken from that household was, uh, you know, valuing that matriarchal matrilineal society, which was that the Cherokee historically really leaned on women as leaders and thinkers. And what Landon passed then to his daughters was the uh, guardian technique of the three sisters. And so, you know, we have an emerging of um, his own myths, but those things were from the Cherokee, you know, the three sisters. And it wasn't just adopted uh, by the Cherokee, it was adopted by many different Native American tribes. And it was the gardening technique that said these three crops uh, should be grown together because uh, they all benefit each other. And so Landon, you know, was taking these things that his mother and his grandmother through their gardening had sort of taught him and he was passing on to that generation. And you know, I, I look at him as um, sort of that generation that was entering that world, learning to speak English, and his elders were sort of speaking this language that might be fading a little in the background. And what they really did in their household was storytelling became that universal language. And storytelling in indigenous cultures, it wasn't just for entertaining. It was a way to spell out their origin. It was a way to craft their relationship with the world around them. And so, you know, that was how Landon formulated his stories from his mother and his grandmother and those elders, and he passed them down to his children. And so I got that infused from, um, you know, his children and Alka. And then once they started to talk about how much um, he spoke about women being important in, in the society and sort of, which was in stark contrast to the um, sort of Christianity that was prevalent within the communities they were living in. Then I, I started to dig deeper into, uh, well, what was this Cherokee society that made those aspects and sort of formulate his opinions of women? And, uh, you know, that's when I went into the matriarchal matrilineal sort of um, definitions of uh, historical Cherokee society. And so it was um, based on both doing that research and also gathered uh, from those sessions that uh, I paired them together. And I had also hired um, a credit genealogist and I went back to um, what clan it was in the family, which was the Anawodi clan, which uh, also really shaped Landon because like in the book, he, he uh, dealt with plants. He made those different uh, decoctions and recipes and going back to that clan of the Anawodi, which was um you know, assigned to the medicine women and men, and they were responsible for the plants, it kind of came full circle with him. And so there was different uh, avenues I was reaching on to sort of build up his character and build up that research of the Cherokee background. So of the decoctions that are inside the novel, are those real? Like, I mean, or like they're pulled from an actual source? Yeah, so Landon, uh, yeah, he, he, would go into these towns and, uh, you know, he would have other jobs too. Like he did coal mining 
Uh, he worked on steel ships, you know, he, um, in the 1930s when they had that program where they would go and they'd work in the, the national parks and clean them up. So he did other things, but his main uh, passion and his love was plants. And he would make uh, these things in the community for people who had uh, come to him with their different aches and pains. And, you know, he always made that distinction that this won't cure you of, you know, your disease or anything, but it will help sort of alleviate those symptoms. And he really sort of passed that knowledge and that respect for plants onto uh, my mother who passed it on to me, my sisters, you know, she raised us with the same plants that he grew and uh, in the same gardens, you know, from an early age, she had us out just sitting in the garden and she would go over the plants like he did. And so all of that uh, knowledge was sort of passed down through the generation. But yeah, like he does in the book, he, uh, he made those different uh, tonics and, and teas and decoctions. And, um, you know, he really uh, relied on the natural world around him. And it was something that um, I grew up with and something that in my mother's household that I grew up with and something that, uh, that definitely shaped me from an early age. And so when I was writing his character, I really wanted to infuse it with those moments that mom had brought us up on in the garden and her telling these stories about Landon and, and Tao was supportive of the figure he was in her life. Life and, and how he would go into these communities. And, you know, I think back to that scene in the book um, where the person approaches him, they ask him, do you accept feathers or beads for payments? And, you know, I was looking at him as someone who, um, who, who should have been much angrier about the things that he was facing, yet he sort of, you know, shrugged it off. And he said, no, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. And so, you know, I really want to present both sides of him, this person who was uh, living with one foot in one world and his other foot in the other and sort of how he balanced that walking forward. Well, we, we love Landon as a character. Uh, and he tells these uh, fantastical, amazing, wonderful stories to his children as a way of teaching them and entertaining them. And a lot of this book is about how the stories shape the characters and, and how they help us or harm us and which stories we should believe and which ones we don't have to care if we believe them or not. They just work as they are. Um, but Betty, so Betty's his daughter and she writes these journals with the truth of what's happening, but she buries them. And then she makes up stories like Landon does um, and there's this one that she makes up about the red lips. And it's, it's an amazing, scary, frightening story. And it's astonishing. Can you tell me a little bit about where that story came from? Yeah, I wanted to backtrack a little too, because um, when you talk about Betty writing um, the stories and, and sort of burying them and, um, you know, as I was listening in those sessions to mom talk about sort of all of these secrets that she was holding in of her sisters and her mother. And, um, you know, I was listening to her and it was very much like she was someone who was, um, you know, digging these holes in her soul and on her body and she was hiding these secrets within her. And so I wanted to sort of pair that with the actual physical act of seeing her digging into the earth and burying these stories and burying these secrets. And, um, you know, when I was thinking of, you know, because mom writes poetry, she does in the book, the poem that starts out the book, My Broken Home, was a poem that uh, she had actually written for this publication. And so, you know, I was looking at mom as a young girl and as a young writer, a young poet. And, um, you know, I was thinking at this moment in time, she has all these sort of um, secrets that she's carrying with her, what would be sort of a story that she would be thinking about. And um, that's where the inheritance of sense sort of came out. I, I created that to sort of speak to 
uh, the generational abuse that was so prevalent in this family. And, you know, in the inheritance of sin, we see a man stealing something from a woman and it's reflective of the things that Grandpappy Lark and um, Leland sort of steal from the women around them in the book. And I won't go into too much detail on that to give any spoilers away, but um, this story illustrates just that that sort of crime, it, it leaves a mark through the next generation. And, you know, we see that this ends of the father. And again, it sort of applies to one of the characters who, um, you know, were questioning who his father is and who his father isn't. So I won't give names and sort of give any spoilers away with that. But uh, with his story, I wanted to show, you know, the sense of the father and how it uh, falls down to the children. But we can break the cycle. Um, it comes down to sort of a kindness of soul and a love to do that. But um you know, I wanted Betty to be crafting a story where we see that in her eyes, there is this generational sin, but it can be broken as up to the individual. And if that individual doesn't break that sin, then it's sort of really on them. And there's no excuse for that sort of same abuse, just because your father might be committing that same abuse for you to continue to commit that abuse through the generations. And, um, you know, I, I reflect back on um, those sessions I had with Mama Alka and you know she's talking about the things she experienced as a little girl and she's talking about her father and her mother and them both being involved and um you know I, I reflected on my sessions with Freya and Flossie and sort of the very personal uh, painful stories that they shared with me about the things that they had experienced and so I had all those sort of stories circling in the back of my mind as I was crafting this inheritance of sin just to show that you know, these abusers, their skill set is um, they, they sort of work on that secrecy that is held within the families. It's that secrecy that breeds this type of abuse. And, you know, Mama, she said, um, when I was a little girl, it was happening to me. And I thought because it was both my mother and my father, I thought this abuse is what happens in every family. So she said she would look out at the other houses and she would imagine the children inside them. And she thought this abuse was um, happening to them as well. And she said, as an adult, if there had been people who was speaking openly about this, if sort of the secret was sort of out in the communities and in the families, that maybe it would have saved her from sort of the same fate. And so as she was telling these stories and, and Frey and Flossie too, they really became champions of speaking out about these things that we can sort of break uh, that inheritance of sin and sort of break that generational abuse. So there's uh, inserts inside the novel. There's these sections where the writer pretends that like they're um, news articles, right? Mm -hmm. And the townspeople are constantly blaming um, gunfire on ghosts and, um, and hauntings and demons. And I developed sort of this idea that what was haunting Breathed was this excess of unanswered crime that, again, no spoilers, right? A church burned down. We never find out who burnt down the church. There was that man whose wife was pulled out of their house and lynched. There are so many crimes that go unanswered. I mean, there's no justice in the novel. And I was wondering if like people were like haunted. Oh, and of, of course, the house that they move into, right? And the murders that happen there. So I was kind of wondering, like, is the town haunted by a lack of justice? Like, it was never set right? 
Yeah, and I think to answer that question, I also have to sort of group in the summer that melted everything with that. Um, you know, it was a book, um, I actually, I wrote Betty first, um, 20 years ago, but the summer when everything became my first published novel. And uh, in many ways, I was carrying forward the story of this family. And in the character of Sal in that book, um, he is a black boy who comes to the town. And, you know, I was infusing his character with some of that sort of violence that Papa Landon experienced as a boy coming of age in these predominantly white communities. And you know, I was looking at these uh, Denver and Southern Ohio towns and sort of the injustice that creeps in. And that book is all about that injustice, especially in the court system and the community. We see that in the case of that story by the end of the novel, that um, there is no justice for the one person in the book that there really should have been. And so, and I also think it goes back to, um, you know, when I was growing up in Southern Ohio in the 90s and I had uh, signed up for Sunday school for the first time and my family wasn't part of the church and I had signed up uh, to go to the summer camp with a friend of mine. And um, so I get into the church, you know, I go to sit in the front row and uh, one of the guys, he's like, you know, the girls and the women, you have to sit in the back. And um, he said, for future reference, always wear a skirt or a dress. And I was wearing a dress, but it was the first time that I had uh, sort of been told that the, the decision wasn't in my own hands. And, uh, you know, I was listening through um, their preaching and, you know, they started to uh, talk about, you know, how gays were running the world, how black women and children were sort of all responsible for these terrible things. And they were using racial slurs. And I realized that, you know, my own mother and papa wouldn't even be welcome at that church. And what I learned from that experience was how they really looked at the bad things that had happened in their lives and they sort of placed the blame onto someone else. And we see that with the character I wrote in the summer that melted everything, Elohim. And he was framed out of those moments in that church where I saw these people who were saying, oh, this happened to me. I was robbed or, you know, relative mine was murdered or, you know, something happened to them. And it, you know, regardless of sort of who had done it, if the person was white or some other race, it seemed to sort of manifest in this internal racism that then sort of led to these beliefs that a certain group of people was responsible or, you know, just because of the color of their skin. And so I, I really started to frame from an early age, okay, this is sort of this mindset um, that's locked in these places. And that's not to say that Southern Ohio doesn't have progressive pockets and that, um, you know, there aren't people here who, who don't sort of harbor those same sentiments. But uh, that was my experience at that moment in time um, in that church. And it really sort of helped to shape and craft breath it as I would write that time later. And, um, you know, listening in those sessions to how mom and, and papa and she said, you know, when we got to town, it was like, you know, gunfire broke out. And that was really what sort of uh, came about and became the origin of those newspaper articles. But she said, you know, it was like that as though when we entered that town, uh, you might as well shot a, a shotgun off in their faces. They just seemed so taken back by our presence. And it just seemed to be such this major threat to them and sort of this, um, this sort of thing that was interrupting their lives. And, you know, you look at this sort of uh, crime in these small towns and you look at these sort of unsolved uh, dilemmas and these these sort of conversations that have no resolution and, and you often see that it goes back to these sort of 
internal conversations and dialogue on race and gender and uh, who exactly is allowed in this town, who exactly isn't, who can live here in peace and who can't. And so in many ways, Breathed is a town that is haunted by those same things that sort of haunt many small towns in America, which is that, uh, you know, our conversations had sort of been uh, closed closet in terms of how far we've advanced in our racial conversations, our conversations on gender, our conversations on religion. And, you know, it, it sort of haunts these towns because unless we move forward, unless we are accepting and more welcoming, we'll still have those ghosts of those previous uh, previous decades and those previous generations sort of lingering around. So Breathed is in many ways that sort of haunted uh, town that has these ghosts that's floating by and Betty and her family. And in the case of the summer that melted everything, that family and Sal, they're really sort of up against these, these things of the past. And, you know, I won't give any spoilers away, but we sort of see how um, it's, it doesn't necessarily always work out in the end. So I'm going to ask a completely sideways question. All right. Um, so you're a visual artist, you're a poet, you write novels, um, and the writing in this is so lush and poetic. So I'm wondering about the title. Um, it's Betty. It's the name of the narrator, the name of this main character. Um, is this to honor Betty? How did you choose that title? Well, um, Betty is my mother's um, real name. And, you know, the book is inspired by her life. And, you know, mom is such a strong, powerful woman. And to me, her name carried those same feelings. And so I thought using her name to represent this story that was really representing, you know, her and her sisters and even her mother, you know, from the time we see her as a little girl, sort of these young girls uh, coming of age and sort of on the cusp of womanhood. And so, you know, I really wanted a name that sort of reflected all of those different things that she was experiencing in the book. And I also reflected back on my own journey to publication, you know, during the course of those two decades, you know, I'd be submitting and agents would say this book is too female. It's, uh, you know, get rid of the menstruation, the bras, it's going to make readers uncomfortable. Let's see the women happier, cheerier. Let's see them in romantic relationships with boyfriends and all these sorts of things. And, and, you know, they sort of fail to realize that, that Betty and these sisters, they're saving themselves and they don't need this sort of uh, male intrusion in their lives that, that's sort of their knight in shining armor because they really are their own knights. And so, you know, I was looking at the title of this book and I remembered how there were agents who said, you know, Tiffany is a very fluffy name. And if you want to be taken uh, seriously in literary fiction, you know, you should use your initials. It's, it's, you know, Tiffany is just a very female name. And, you know, you heard it so much that, you know, there's a point in my life where I thought, well, maybe I am going to have to use my initials. You know, maybe readers will be turned off by, by seeing a name like Tiffany, or maybe they won't take me seriously. And then, you know, you realize that, um, you would be part of the problem and not necessarily the solution. So, you know, I went full force with Tiffany, unafraid. And, you know, in the case of Betty, I also really wanted to use a, a female name that was so clearly female. And, um, you know, to say that uh, women's names are just as powerful and, uh, you know, it represents so much more, um, you know, I think we're used to sort of seeing women one-sided in literature. And, and I really want to present all sides of women and sort of show that, you know, this is a name that, um, 
yes, this female and yes, this book is about a girl and yes, this book is about women, but uh, there's nothing too female about these stories. It's, it's all human stories and there's nothing risky about telling them. It's something that um, we should embrace. And so Betty was sort of born out of that desire of uh, seeing a powerful female name on the cover and sort of opening it up to that same story. Thank you. I have a, so there's a scene that I want to talk to you about. The next door neighbor girl who is um, particularly vicious to our protagonist, right? And then towards the end of the book, there's this redemption forgiveness scene where our protagonist like completely forgives the next door neighbor girl. And I was wondering, were you afraid when you were writing that scene that was like too much of the magical Negro scene? that moment when white people are absolved of all the harm that they've given and it gives them a chance to feel good about themselves? Well, it was when I was listening in those sessions to mom talk about, and Ruth is, is the neighbor girl and she's sort of a composite character based on all those different bullies that mom experienced. And, you know, I, I was just listening in those sessions to mom and listening to the racial slurs that she was called. And, and you know, they did sort of make a distinction between uh, Native American and Black American. So if you were dark-skinned in these communities, you were instantly called the N-word, regardless of what your cultural background was. And, uh, you know, it was a name that these bullies at school, and even the teachers at school, you know, as I was listening to her sessions, I was sort of taken back that the teachers were also involved in this sort of cruelty and this racism. And so, you know, it, you know, it brought my mother to tears in these sessions as she was talking about that bully and talking about the experiences, um, talking about the way uh, her father had been treated in these communities. And that moment um, between her and Rufus in the book, because my mother had sort of held on to all of that negativity and all those feelings for all those years. And she, you know, would reflect back on the things that they said to her. And it was something that she carried. And I saw that, uh, I really wanted her to sort of be free of that. And so when I was writing that scene, you know, I thought, how can I sort of give my mother this sort of um, cut the thread, at least for my mother in fiction that maybe she didn't get in reality. And so we saw her in that scene sort of saying that, um, you know, I acknowledge the sort of uh, slurs you've slung my way. I acknowledge the abuse that you've sort of laid upon me. But I'm better than this. I'm going to survive this. You'll still be stuck here. You'll be stuck wherever you are. But, uh, you know, I'll be getting on this rocket ship to the stars and, and you can never follow me. And so I think for personal reasons, I really wanted to have that scene between mom and that neighbor girl because I saw the impact and the effects that all that bullying and sort of all those years of abuse had sort of done for my mother as an adult. You know, I, you know, I remember walking sort of when I would be a kid with my mother and, you know, strangers would come up to her and ask her, where are you from? You know, you're not from around here. Why is your skin so dark? Are you from Mexico? Are you black? What are you? And this was just sort of strangers coming up to her. And so, you know, it was something that every time that would happen, she would also then reflect back on those experiences with the girls in school and, and with the teachers. And so in fiction, I really wanted to give her the opportunity to say that I am better than you. I have survived you. And so, you know, I'm now cutting free of the weight of everything that you had sort of piled upon me over the years. So I think for personal reasons, I wanted to really see mom sort of be free of that abuse that she had 
even today, she still carries it today. I mean, you, those, those sort of abuse and bullying, and I think, you know, feeling insignificant, especially as Papa Landon did, there are things that uh, you carry with you, no matter how many years have passed, and um, in fiction, at least, you know, now, after she read that scene, you know, she was like, I, I wish that I would have had those feelings when it was happening to me. I wish I could have stood up and said, you know, I do matter and, and um, all these sorts of things. And, and so at least in fiction, it gave her that chance to be free of that. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. This is Lines of Loganberry, and we are here with author Tiffany Daniel, who most recently wrote and published Betty. Tiffany, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Tiffany, for writing this book. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links to the books discussed in this episode included in the episode description. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com, check our social media at Loganberry Books, and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening.